Welcome to Dry Clean Only, conversations on fashion and style. I'm your host, Kristen Cole in New York. I'm a fashion consultant with 20 years experience in the industry as a high concept retailer, fashion director, founder, and buyer. On this podcast, I sit with designers, stylists, experts, authors, innovators, and leaders in the space to bring you casual conversations around the many industry topics of the moment with insights and observations along the way. I hope you enjoy. So today we have episode number 26, where I have the pleasure of speaking with Lizzie Fortunato Jewel's founders, sisters, and twins, Lizzie Fortunato and Catherine Fortunato, whom I just adore. We sat down at Broadway Gallery in Tribeca. Thanks guys for letting me use your space to chat about the successful, independent, intentional business they have built, how they got started, what they're loving right now, and the many shifts they've navigated along the way. Lizzie, the creative director, shares with us details on her process and passion for creating the beautiful, bold statement jewelry they are known for. And Catherine shares her passion for running the business side of everything from wholesale strategy to systems upgrades, e-com growth, and the organizations they are passionate about supporting. It is late November, almost Thanksgiving here in the States. Holiday season is very much upon us. We've gone from kind of chilly fall weather here in New York to full-blown, not-so-cute, break-out-your-puffer-in-all-winter-accessories mode. Very cold. I have my eye on an incredible new red Fjallraven puffer, but we'll see. I probably don't need any more. All you need is one great puffer, and I do have many. In an amazingly fashion-forward move, Balenciaga is the first major luxury brand to leave Elon Musk's Twitter last week also obsessed with Balenciaga's new home and objet line recently revealed. Gabriella Hurst at COP27, the UN's annual climate change conference, to participate in a panel regarding fusion, clean energy for all, how cool is she? Here in New York, the Fashion Act gets a redo with some important amendments to the bill to hopefully get the legislation passed. Very exciting. A lot of new brand and union support around it. Go to thefashionact.org to learn more or follow the New Standard Institute's Instagram feed, NSI Fashion 2030. There's a pretty hefty fund for designers uh, that's just been announced called the Fashion Trust US that will be awarded in March. Designers can apply at fashiontrustus.com. Diet Prada seemed to strike a chord last week with their post from model Vittoria Soretti, critique on Nepo babies in the modeling industry, quite entertaining and enlightening in case you missed it. And this week, we should see lots of brands and retailers announcing major Black Friday to Cyber Monday promotional sales, so be sure to check out your favorite designers' feeds and sites, and we'll see how those results forecast fashion's fourth quarter sales. Okay, now, so happy to welcome Lizzie and Catherine Fortunato to the pod. You guys, thank you so much for coming on the pod. We're so excited to be here. And thanks for coming over to Broadway. So many questions. I've known you both for many years. When did you when did you start the line? So this How will actually be our 15th year. We started 2008, um, which is really mind-boggling. It's incredible. Yeah, I really it's wild. and that's, you know what, 2008 is when I started my first business. Yeah. yeah. So so we yeah, it's interesting. Crazy. There are still so many of our friends and peers who are yeah. in fashion, but a lot of them have, have moved, moved whereas we're still just like chugging along. But I'm you know, like we feel steps so, away. <laughs> we feel so happy That's to still amazing. be doing what we love, but it is interesting. So many of the friends that we started out with in jewelry are like no longer 
doing what they were doing before. Totally. And I feel like you've just kind of seen like four different lifetimes of the cycle. Yeah. Uh, whether it be like a financial crisis, crash, like the, the economic yeah. cycle and also just the fashion cycle and the trends. And it does always cycle, which and you kind of have and to remember. And the world. Yeah. And the world. Yeah. Yep. You have to kind of remember like what goes around comes around. Yeah. But to sit here and watch it and then try to stay constant throughout is a bizarre uh like challenge challenge. Mm -hmm. yes no that's true and even like existentially there seems to always be another one looming um totally especially right now you started 15 years ago and i know i think of you guys as brooklyn girls are you both in brooklyn still we're both in brooklyn now when we launched um we were living in manhattan and our studio is still in manhattan so we're here every day in the city but um we both live in brooklyn about five blocks apart and were one of you in Bellport? Yes. This is Lizzie speaking, and I am in Bellport on the weekends and Amazing. just finished a fun little renovation on a beach cottage. So that was a great project, especially during COVID. But I am out there, although not full-time. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Tell me a little bit about Bellport. It's great. I mean, it. I am like a, a relative newcomer. We've only been out there for about four years, and um, there's an awesome community there. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, full-timers, year-rounders who are out there who we've become friends with. And including our mom who just retired there. Yes, including our mom. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then there's also there's also a slew of New Yorkers who, who go out for the summers or for weekends, and like there's a great artistic community. Um, Isabella Rosalini has a farm there that we're a part of the CSA of for that. So like Amazing. there's, it's just like a good escape from the city, and it's 55 miles from our Brooklyn apartment. So, incredible. In theory, it's close. You're there in about, <laughs> about an hour, as opposed to the yes. three hours. I mean, if you don't leave on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. Right. Which no and we one joke should. that kind of our social scene out in Bellport is better than New York now because so many of our friends have migrated from New York. Maybe That's not amazing. permanently, but yeah. temporarily at least. Yeah. Yeah. But then on the flip side, you know, I, a crazy night in Bellport is, you know, making it to Carla Marla's ice cream parlor by like nine o'clock. Um, totally. But it's really fun. And there, like Lizzie said, there's really cool creatives out there and a, and a cool sort of art scene and interesting yeah. community that it's always nice to realize you have that so close to home yeah. uh, without sort of knowing that that was right at your doorstep. Totally. And what neighborhoods are you guys in in Brooklyn? We're both in Clinton Hill, um, and we've been there for a while. So that's that's our home here, and it's it's good. It feels like home. I'm around the corner. This is Catherine. I'm around the corner from Otway. Uh, it's a bakery and an all-day cafe, and it's great. I feel like Amazing. actually if anybody's in Brooklyn, hot tip, it's just the best date night, like a Negroni at the bar at Otway or like one of their glasses of natural wines, and their food is delicious and it's called Otway Otway O-T-W-A-Y I don't even want to give this up because I feel like it's one of those few places that it's like a New York gym and doesn't have crazy weights maybe because it is truly in a residential neighborhood yeah but I happen to live a block away and we joke like will the baby monitor work for a block yeah Yeah. Uh, exactly totally so it's like so almost (laughs) so close yeah so so far away in in like the 60s like when you read you know biographies of different artists and stuff they were totally doing that they were you know leaving their babies like in a Chelsea loft and going out you know sans monitor yeah whoa very different times. I'm not that kind of mom. <laughs> I wish I was. Lizzie and I aren't either. Although we do have a really good girlfriend who's right down the street from Aita, which is another great Italian restaurant, more Fort Green, but very close. Mm-hmm. And she really is like two doors down. And I feel like maybe she just makes the cut of being able to go down to Aita for some food and leaving like, the kid upstairs. Possibly. Possibly. It's okay. Yeah. It's I know. definitely an active part about New York parenting conversation. I've definitely done that in hotel rooms. I don't yeah. know if that's yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've done but like, you know, go yeah. down to the lobby. Yeah. But then I'm still nervous, but... 
I feel like that should actually be a criteria when you're choosing a hotel room. Yeah. Can I leave my kid upstairs and like eat downstairs? How far like of a <laughs> totally. run is it? Of a mad dash totally. is it back to the room? I know. It's so good. Game changer for travel. Monitor and does the monitor reach? Yeah. Um, how old are your babies? I know you guys had babies yes. almost at the same um, time. It's crazy. We're twin sisters and had kids seven days apart to the day. And they are almost two and a half. So still, still little. So Lizzie and I spent a lot of time in the years preceding babies planning how to plan pregnancy and make sure we weren't having babies at the same time because Lizzie runs the creative and I run the operations for Lizzie Fortunato and we thought we'll just take turns with maternity leave in each cover when the other person's out and so that was sort of an ongoing conversation in 2017 and 18 and 19 and then sure enough in 2020 July we had babies seven days apart and nobody (laughs) believes that it was unplanned but it was and then you know it was in the middle of COVID so in retrospect everything kind of worked out like it should have as well as it can you also can't plan that's no. the moral of the story. No planning. You can't, especially <laughs> once you become a parent. Totally. Like, you can only plan so far. So much is left to chance. Yeah. So, Lizzie, how did you get into fashion? Yeah. Um, well, as I said, we founded the line 15 years ago, but I was making jewelry during college. Um, Catherine and I were both at Duke for undergrad together, and I was like that crafty kid who was leaving tailgates early to go to a bead store in Raleigh, North Carolina and was like buying beads, bringing them back to my dorm room, making necklaces. Um, Girls would stop Catherine and me on campus and be like, are you guys the sisters that make the jewelry? And I was, I'm not an entrepreneur. I was kind of ready to give it away. And Catherine being the entrepreneur of the two of us was like, oh yeah, we'll sell you something. (laughs) So she quickly laid. That's amazing. And that sounds very right. She's like, no, you can't give that away. (laughs) Uh, I was like, do you want to love a deal? What's the the margin on this? Exactly. Um, So that really laid the foundation for the business, even though at the time we thought it was totally a hobby. And we had these girls who were friends then, and some of them are even still friends now who were like our first customers and kind of like the breeding ground for how we started the business. And we moved to New York in 06. Yeah, we, so we, after Catherine started like selling things to people, um, she was working at a restaurant, a local restaurant in Durham and asked the owners of the restaurant if they were closed on Sundays, if we could use one of the restaurant rooms on a Sunday and she put together our first trunk show. So this was like, you know, 20 years ago or something. And it sold out in like 20 minutes and Catherine would take orders. And then for the next semester, she would like go to my physics class while I made jewelry for people. She took physics at Duke. That's amazing. Yeah, not, it was definitely not physics. It was like, I think it was like Spanish 101. <laughs> it was your required language. Class. It was a required stack course. But in any case, um, Catherine kind of like laid the foundation with that said we both thought we would move to New York and get like quote real jobs so she had interned on Wall Street and got you know a really prestigious job at Goldman Sachs and I went um, to Paul Wilmot Communications where I did a year in fashion PR but was still making jewelry on the side and at that point I I had interned at Women's Wear Daily I'd interned at The Fader I had a bunch of friends in um, in publishing and then like you know interns at music magazines or they were like entry level at like a fashion magazine and they were the lowest on the totem pole but they still would tell me my editor is working on a story about this if you like brought some jewelry by I could probably get something in and the incredible thing is it worked but also now those same slew of girls are like the editors like they are in charge 20 years later so we've had this really awesome support system in New York because we started um, just kind of like on the ground at these jobs and Catherine stayed at Goldman for about 
five or six years, um, but working with me on nights and weekends. So Amazing. she would like come home from work and write up a purchase order because I had knocked on some boutique door in the West Village and gotten a small order. It was super organic though. It was like pounding the pavement. Um, we didn't raise any money. Catherine gave me her first bonus check from Goldman. So $10,000 so um, was our seed money. And since then it's just been organic growth. That's incredible. I kind of like knew your story a little bit, but I didn't realize like how incredibly organic. Like, yeah, organic. It was also a different a time. Um, yeah, it was a hustle, hustle, and it was when brick and mortar still mattered. Yeah. It was pre-Instagram. Yeah. It was pre-most lines having viable e-commerce sites. So we were it really was printed magazines, printed magazines, physical stores, totally yeah, press. Press mattered, Press mattered yeah. so much. I, I had a really close friend who's still one of my best friends who was working at W. And um, she, one morning, I was like living in a walk up on Houston Street in the East Village. And she one morning called me and she was like, run down to the newsstand. And I saw on the copy, the front page of Women's Wear Daily was one of our necklaces. And this was like six months in. And I was just Everything. like, what the heck? And it again was because like I had a friend who was like low level at WWD and like got it in the magazine. So got it onto it, the set, yes, got it into the Exactly. Um it was just really organic in a way that almost doesn't feel possible today because everything is so digital and so organized and so corporate and um yeah, it was really we different. Used, we used to hustle and some days we would go for, you know, weeks just working on our computers thinking that was the magic, but really at the time it was just being out and getting your name out there. And so there would be nights where we would each take 10 business cards to the Beatrice Inn and you weren't allowed to go home until you passed out your That's 10 hilarious. business cards. And my mom called that PR at the bar. Um, so I feel like, and it was always after those nights that then you get like a press credit, which then, you know, a store would see and then a buyer would come and approach you. So it really was that hustle. I mean, it was just the truest form of doing that. We talk now, if we were going to do it all over again, well, first you need the adrenaline of being a desperate, you know, 21 year old who just wants it so badly and has no resources except their own hustle yeah, that's a special time in life when you like just have that burn absolutely and that, absolutely you know, like, I don't have that yeah. anymore the energy hence, is very different hence not opening another yeah. store but like you know there is that thing and it does require that level of passion and energy and just like I'm gonna fucking make this happen absolutely you definitely and I mean I think people get those spurts of energy different points in their life to be honest I don't have it now like I did when I was 22 but it was just like this I can you have it for different do, exactly and it was like I can do anything I was like we were, you know, little super women. And we also knew that it was just like this or bust, like go get a real job. It's not like we were had this endless runway of like playing with our parents' money or something. It wasn't our parents' money. So we were just kind of like, we're just going to work really hard at this and see what happens. Yeah. No, that's incredible. I wonder how I found out about you because it's so, it is so funny, even like for me as a retailer back then, it was like the sense of discovery was so organic. As totally. Well. It's like, I mean, I don't think you passed me a card at the Beatrice Inn, but like it might, like it, <laughs> totally. it, it felt like, yeah, you had to kind of like hear about things from a friend, from a totally. stylist, from someone else. Yeah. And it was kind of like this small network of stores too. We really felt like when we could get in one store, then other stores would follow. So it was like this so snowball effect. I remember when we got in Albertine in the West Village, it felt like such a breakthrough because I remember um, like buyers from Bergdorf's and Barney's would go down and check out what Albertine had. Like she was always very totally. cutting edge. And there yeah. were a few stores like that. Well, and 10 over 6 was kind of, you know, in the stable of those first, like, half dozen stores that were, you know, reputation making, you know? I mean, I I feel like 
I didn't realize you also started the same year because I feel like you were more established than we were. Me neither. It's so <laughs> weird. I just, but like, I but those first few years were. Very but also, amazing. when you start yeah. as a young designer, you feel like everyone's more established than you are. So in our eyes, you totally. are like the, the big thing. Well, I'm also just a tiny bit older than you, so it's probably just that, you know, because I started ten or six when I was 29, which felt yeah. really young, you know, at the time. And still is really young, yeah. And it is, but yeah. So you never went to design school. I didn't. I studied English and art history at Duke. I had no professional training, which in retrospect, you know. It's totally uh, fine. It's fine. But like, you know, you always, you always kind of wish for what you don't have. I was like, oh, I should have worked at a jewelry company first and like learned how to like do so many of the things that I now do. Very long, hard way. Yeah. So you, you go to business school by starting your own business or you go to fashion school by starting your own fashion line. 100%. Um, But I, I wasn't trained for this and I think teaching myself to make jewelry wasn't the hard part it's teaching yourself to run a business that is the hard part because in the very beginning when Catherine was working full-time I would call I would take appointments with buyers in our Chinatown apartment and like a store would come in and want these certain terms and I would like race to the bathroom pretending I had to go to the bathroom and call Catherine and be like Catherine they want net 30 I don't know what that means should I take this order and she's like I'm on a trade I work on Wall Street you have to call me later like I can't do this right now so in the very beginning it was just me kind of doing the business part and that was the super challenging thing because as a creative I was not cut out for that and that's why I ultimately succeeded in getting Catherine to hop ship from her corporate job because I was like I can't do the business um it's either you or we're gonna have to hire someone else to do it and I think that's when she was like okay I don't want to be someone else I'll quit well what's I mean that brings me to my next question which is partnership which is like so vital and it's you know I talk to people all the time you know I think creatives especially feel so fortunate when they have the right business partner what do you guys think working as siblings you know there's so many couples that work together and best friends that work together and siblings that work together in fashion some and wonderfully some disastrously what do you think are some of the secrets of doing this well totally this is such a popular and important question because we all know yeah. that it's so risky to go into business with a family member or a best friend or a significant love. other or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And our mom, especially who is like our third sister, was really concerned, not concerned, but cautious when we were starting the business and said, I just never want this to come between you guys. I think in her mind, she couldn't see an outcome where the business <laughs> didn't have some kind of uh, potentially negative impact on our relationship because we're so right. close and we've right. kind of walked through life in lockstep together. And, um, she gave us really good advice. She introduced us, I think, to a lawyer friend of hers who sat us down and we wrote a partnership agreement really before we had any business to speak of. And so it was smart. incredible. I mean, it was on paper. If we have a disagreement, these are the steps to solve it. Here's like a named mediator. If the mediator can't solve it, then creative decisions, Lizzie will have the ultimate say. Financial decisions, Catherine will have the ultimate say. Uh, which is amazing and like seemed really um, sort of insightful considering that we didn't even have any income at the time. Luckily, we haven't really had to ever pull that out. If anything, I think that the earlier years were harder because it was just the two of us. So, you know, any minor inconvenience and, you know, the uh, sort of exhaustion of building everything yourself, you're taking out on the other person. So it was kind of easy to snap at each other. As we've grown, we've found that we're each other's biggest allies because now we have a you know, a meaningfully large team to take care of. And, and that's only 15 people, but it feels big. Um, and so... Yeah, but you are now co-founders. Co- for like, sure. Now we're each other's sort of best sanity. And when one of us is sort of down or exhausted or just, you know, beat, the other one can kind of steer the ship and vice versa. So we found a lot of solace these days in it. In the beginning, it was... It was challenging. And also creating an environment for, you know, a very small team when there's two sisters who 
can fight one minute and the next minute say, sorry, Lizzie, I love you. Uh, so that was sort of something to get used to. Yeah, that's something that I think, like, we look back on and we have a few employees who have been with us for a long time now. And I feel so bad for them that in the early days they probably witnessed, like, very sisterly behavior that I wish we could take back. But it's like you forget that not everyone is related to you. You like, you know, you can, you're never going to talk to an employee necessarily like you might talk to your sister, but as Catherine said, you might be hugging and kissing and making up the very next second, but you have to remember like, this is, we have to keep this professional. And I think the thing that has ultimately benefited us the most is that we are very siloed in our work. So I really don't have interest in making operational or financial decisions. Catherine has no interest in creative to the point where sometimes I'll ask her for feedback on a design and like, She'll give it to me, and I'm like, well, that was stupid. I'm going to disregard that. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, that is kind you, you both have your lanes, totally. and you have we very well-defined. We really don't well-defined. step on each other's yeah. toes. And I think it is harder when both partners want to have a creative vision that might get clouded by the other persons, whereas, like, that doesn't happen with us. So I always think of the line, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me it's a very kind of, like, maximalist line. Is that kind of where you start, I, I think like Deanna Vreeland and Iris Apfel and like these like, you know, women who can layer. And I think that's right. It's interesting because when I think about my personal wardrobe, I... And please correct no, 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 me if I'm I, think, I like that word. I yeah. should use maximalist more. Um, we like often say statement. Like I think I do have a lot of print in my wardrobe. Like I'm a big Dries fan. Um, but then I also... I'm always like searching for just like the perfect black pant and the perfect blazer because I want to then layer jewelry on on top of it. So it's this mix of like maximalist, but also just like finding that statement piece that's going to upgrade your outfit. Catherine and I are big believers in like shopping fewer and shopping better or whatever the expression is. Um, Like we're not huge shoppers, but then we want to buy amazing pieces. And when we do, we then want to be able to wear them all the time and accessorize them to make things feel different so it's like maximalist but also not necessarily going overboard in consumption if that makes sense um we're really conscious of like having maximalist in attitude attitude, but not Um, in yeah can you explain just because i feel like it's interesting like that maximalist aesthetic when we started was like literally a necklace covered in fabric flowers that was actually gigantic like totally bib like a statement bib doesn't really trend now and like we're still maximalist but we've had to figure out a very different way to communicate that that's actually a great point because when we started in 2008 danny joe was putting a bib on it and that was the trend it was very crystal we were doing like huge fabric flower necklaces which i still love but i have a feeling if we made them we would go out of business (laughs) i just don't think it's the trend right now but we were doing like really um tactile mixed medium big statement pieces and that's i think how we that the piece that showed up on the cover of women's wear daily was like fabric ribbons chain all this stuff piled on um justin gunta subversive jewelry was doing this like there were a lot of people carving this space and then around like 2012 or so this demi fine trend came into being and suddenly it was like everyone just wants like a dainty chain with a little diamond or a little pearl and our business we had to shift it and I think as Catherine just kind of pointed out we some of our silhouettes changed but we still had this approach of like let's use unexpected materials let's find um a silhouette that maybe is daintier but still feels funky and um unexpected and that has kind of shaped our vision and like kept us on this same path. We try not to be too affected by the trends, but obviously need to sell things. But I think that's kind of defined the brand over the years. And not just silhouette, but color too. I talked to so many buyers. This is Catherine and I do more of the market selling. But so many buyers say, even if we're making a smaller thing, like just a single strand of beads, oftentimes Lizzie Fortunato is offering it in color, whereas a lot of our peers are doing it in gold or silver, which is also 
you know, beautiful. And I think so using different parts of the language to still feel maximalist, even if it's not a gigantic statement necklace. And then in the past few years, I would say we're still doing more of like the single strands are like less of the huge bibs, but we are wearing lots of them at once. So there's like this layering education that we're giving to our customers where you might have like right now I'm wearing a big strand of Baroque pearls, but I have it layered with aquamarine and then like big resin hoops on. So you're mixing different things together. All of the things would certainly look great on their own, but yeah, we probably put one more piece on than we should. And we feel good about no, it. I love, no, and that's good. No, and I and I love what you're wearing and how you're wearing it. Do you have any like styling advice for how to pair necklaces? Yeah, that's a great how? question. When we, it's a, actually, I guess my trick would be, and I'm not doing this exactly right now, but I'm often wearing like a pendant under a collar, so something that falls into a V shape with like a, a pendant on it under a rounder shape, like a strand of beads that sits like a collar. And when we style lookbook shoots we are always trying to get it like as much in the shot as we can so we don't have to take a zillion shots without it looking absurd and we off this is often our approach where we'll do like a pendant under a few strands of beads so you have this like v silhouette coming out under your rounded collar and i think that strategy is like very attractive but i also think that trend of like put a bib on it which was 15 years ago and many listeners will not remember that trend um has probably been replaced we call it the neck mess and it and we we kind of do pre-made neck messes where we actually have a necklace that is multi-strands but it's all a single necklace so people like that layered look but don't always want to achieve it themselves and you can just buy the pre-made neck mess and then we really encourage people to like put on a few different strands let them be different materials we work in 14 karat gold now so let's use like a fashion jewelry piece and a fine jewelry piece and mix them together put an African recycled glass bead with you know again a semi-precious stone and I think not being scared is a really important part of it because so much of our jewelry is not intimidating like people will say I can't wear that that's too big and at the end of the day Lizzie and I are pretty petite we're like 5'3 and like love a big necklace or love you know a few strands layered and we're also running around you know we leave Brooklyn at seven in the morning and don't get home until seven in the evening and so we never want it to feel fussy it's just about sort of being comfortable and telling your own story and that's always been the motto is like being an original dresser and sort of making it your own yeah just like having fun with it I love that any places you go Lizzie for inspiration I mean I've seen totally travel like um pre-covid I was traveling a lot I mean that was also pre-baby so that was far easier and I have to say when I do travel before designing a collection it makes designing a collection so much easier um this past summer, I was in Portugal, and then our design director was also separately in Portugal, and we both came back with such similar references, and she had purchased all these tiles, and I had um, collected all these sources of inspiration, and we were just, like, in lockstep designing the collection, and it was just, like, really easy. Um, during COVID, was obviously trickier. I took a bunch of trips to the Metropolitan. Um, we went up to the design library, but it's it's hard when you can't get out. And I think most of my inspiration comes from just like being out and about, whether that's an airplane ride away or whether it's just like walking around and seeing amazingly dressed people or interesting people or going to a museum. I feel like I'm not someone who can design a collection like based on a deep dive on Pinterest. Like in a, in yeah, a bubble like, or in a... And, yeah. and the computer doesn't so much do it for me. Like I'll, those are good jumping off points and I'll like see something online that will spur an idea but I always feel more rewarded when I like get to a cool exhibit or and as I said like get to a cool place is just the ultimate. When you're like walking around and you see something and it sparks an idea are you sketching in a notebook or do you write I, I do write like things down a lot um, and I yeah. sometimes will write myself these emails that then I like two days later will look at and be like I literally don't know what that means. 
I can't make sense of it. I send myself yeah. texts, which is really crazy when I have certain things, and then I'm like, oh yes, um, like, totally. And it's funny because like when I email myself, oftentimes the shop at Lizzie Fortunato email will populate, and I so I'll inadvertently send it to someone else in the office who gets customer service emails, and they're like, I got this weird email from you that says like blue bead, and I don't know what it means. And I'm like, I don't know what it means either. Blue bead and da da da. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, I do try and like record things sometimes like I'll be laying in bed at night and jot something down sometimes it materializes and oftentimes it doesn't but yeah when I can get out or even better on an airplane I feel really stimulated and it's great and then also we'll purchase materials when we're traveling too which is awesome and that will inform a lot yeah and I feel like maybe some people might underestimate the fact that 15 years in you're still making you know, every uh, you have a, a small team now, but you guys are still making all of the samples. So a lot of it also comes from like Lizzie putting together and taking apart the same necklace eight times until it strikes the right chord for you. And that That's like amazing. sort of uh, manipulation of materials. You guys came home from the Tucson Gem Show with all these rich and incredible beads and stones and gems. But I feel like the average person looks at those and doesn't really know what to do with them. And part of the magic is figuring out how to manipulate materials to put them together in a way that you could actually then wear it as a necklace and maybe it maybe it's not surprising but it's surprising to me that still at this point in your career it's like midnight and you've taken the necklace apart and put it back together eight times and it's like still not right and you're going to continue to do it another eight times I feel like that's that's like the design the ready to wear designers who just like have to drape Mm -hmm. on you know drape the muslin or drape on form and play around over and over and manipulate that's honestly the fun part for me we do work with some overseas vendors and with them it's more technical drawings on the computer which I can do but for me it's just not nearly as fun as getting to hold things in my hand and lay things out and put it together and yeah and play with something in, in real life and do you produce, so you do your sample making in your studio. Do you produce in New York City it's or It's a mixed over? bag. We do, um, we do, I would say, what do you think, like 75% of production in our studio. And then we do a little bit of start to pr- finish production overseas, China, India, Thailand, and, and component production. So we might have like a bezel that comes in from China, or we might have um, beads that are coming that we will get custom made because we'll have... Um, you know, lapidaries in Jaipur, India, make beads for us that are like a certain material, a certain shape, but then they don't assemble them into the necklace. The beads will like arrive in a box to our studio and we have a production team in our studio who's then like stringing them and doing finishing and things like that. So it's definitely not like sending a purchase order off to a factory and getting a box of finished goods in and us like, you know, eating bonbons in the meantime. It's very piecemeal where even the stuff that's happening out of office is like coming in in a, and then we're still having to deal with it and assemble it and and we you've, you've hit your hands, hands on, on it, it big time and we were actually so fortunate during covid when so many other fashion lines couldn't produce because they are factories especially asian factories were shut down we were doing enough local production i mean a very significant amount of local production where we had this like network of okay this subcontractor might not be coming to our office today but they she can still assemble stuff from her house in new jersey and then she's going to ship goods to this other person who's finishing it at her apartment in brooklyn and then she's going to ship it to Catherine, who's going to get like night terrorists thinking about that. send it to a store but like needless to say it was local enough that we could still produce and ship things out which was remarkable yeah That's we've amazing. often said it's a little masochistic because i mean the final piece is much greater than the sum of its parts and the sum of its parts are infinite and even simple pieces might go through like eight or nine sets of hands to just get to you know the end product but it's a made it really hard to replicate and b i think still kept it 
really authentic feeling um, and really sort of kept the DNA really strong as opposed to if we tried to replicate the original Lizzie aesthetic by just going to a start to finish factory overseas, um, which might be easier, but probably less impactful. Well, yeah, and you, I, I think, like, maintaining and expressing that, like, independent spirit is so awesome and what people are buying into as yeah. well. And, you know, everything you're saying, it's like, I just, like, wish more end consumers could understand these things because it's like, it really does promote the whole idea of, like, buy better, buy 100%. less. Because, like, you know, quality fashion goods have so much time and love and hands and, you know, craftsmanship on it. And it's like... You know, people who are just like consuming and ditching and on it's just like, oh my God, buy a good piece. Keep and it forever. Stick with it. Yeah, we yeah. we need to do a better job of storytelling on this because even though we say, you know, made in USA, made in New York, you know, show pictures of our studio, there's this sort of second parallel process, which is in addition to our team of 15, we probably have another 10 to 15 subcontractors who come in once or twice a week. They get materials and they take them in their rolling carts or their rolling suitcases home to uh, their house in New York or their house in New Jersey or their house in Brooklyn or wherever it is and then they make jewelry and uh, many of these people are single moms who need to be at home to ch- care for kids they're incredible craftsmen I mean our head seamstress has been with us since longer than when I joined you a Lizzie founder on Craigslist about 15 years ago and she was a former seamstress for the Joffrey Ballet and so her handiwork is meticulous and perfect and it's incredible that we have this network of women who are actually doing that handmade craftsmanship and really, A, making their full living wages from Lizzie Fortunato pieces, and then also we're able to support our entire production cycle, which is about 7,000 plus pieces a season via the handmade nature of, you know, people actually working, you know, in their house making those pieces. No, it's so incredible. Did you guys see the documentary Invisible Seams? Did I watch that? I haven't seen it. I need to watch it. it. It's about the the New York garment district, um, mostly, um, I guess, Asian community garment workers, and it's incredible. It's such a good documentary. It's like such a must-see. Have you guys talked to Gigi Burris? Yes, we're we're working with her new initiative, Closely Crafted, and she's a good friend of ours. And we, we, like, really connect because she kind of has approach things the same way that we have it really favoring this like intentional approach to production instead of explosive growth and I think the explosive growth is what like by avoiding that is what has kept us here for 15 years 100 percent. I just think yeah slow and steady yeah and her pieces are beautiful we both like are always wearing Gigi hats and Gigi headbands and um I know we love it I have I have one on my wish list she's so talented and one more question for you Lizzie so what's like in terms of ready to wear, what designers do you love? Do you have like a dream collaboration? Mm. The like collaboration what? question is a good one and it's a hard one. I feel like my, when I look at designers who I'm like, who's doing beautiful things, um, yeah. Bottega recently, I'm just yeah. in love with. Um, yeah, I yes. love his, his new take on it. I mean, I've loved it for great. the Daniel Lee years as well, but um, yeah, with yeah. Matthew Blase. Agreed. Just incredible. And then, I'm always kind of looking at like the Dries prints and the Marnie prints, the the Marnie with the sun and the horizons and the sunsets this season um, Mm -hmm. for spring 23 was amazing. And and then on the flip side, I do also look at just like simpler and cleaner lines because I I think when I think about like styling something in one of our lookbooks, I'm like, oh, it would be beautiful to do 20 necklaces styled on this like sleek look from Joel Sander or this like beautiful the row look. Totally. That's not necessarily what we're styling on the lookbook, but like I think that's yeah, kind of the vision. Sometimes when I think about like the easiest way to sell our pieces, like whilst well, like a simple yes, slip dress, exactly. What you're wearing. Um, Incredible. So like I, 
And Jill Sanders is actually doing some super cool jewelry. So I love the styling approach that they've taken to like a really clean look, but then statement jewelry. I look at that a lot. Yeah. And then for Prince, I've always been a Dries girl. That makes sense. And Catherine, what what categories are your like bread and butter? Is it the necklace? Yeah, it's funny. It was definitely necklaces when we started. And then there was this huge statement earring moment, like, I don't know five plus five years, years ago, five years ago yeah. yeah we did a we did a fringe silk earring called the crater earring that Anne Hathaway wore absolutely beautifully and then oh gosh, sort of definitely exploded I'm, I feel like yeah. I feel like if you're a Lizzie sort of loyalist you have a crater earring somewhere in your closet um and now it's moved back to necklaces again which I'm really happy about because the earring trend stuck I mean the earrings are you know neck and neck with necklaces no pun intended but the earring trend stuck for so long and I'm really really glad that people sort of remember and know us as a necklace brand again that's sort of I think our original DNA um we just relaunched for the first time in a while uh rings for spring 23 so we showed these amazing glass cocktail rings definitely like a very small part of the collection but just nice to diversify a little bit and then I would say the same goes for our adjacent categories so scarves belts bags are all part of the Lizzie world and while they're not as big I would say it's really nice with so many store of our stores are multi-brand boutiques who can show the entire collection sort of in its entirety, meaning that they might have a great necklace and then the customer's in the fitting room and the stylist says, well, try on this really cool belt. And the customer's like, oh, who makes that belt? Oh, it's the same brand. And even like on Instagram, people will be like, who made your belt? And we're like, we did. So we really want to accessorize that person. Um, you know, they don't have to be head to toe, Lizzie, but we like the idea that you can kind of enter the world and find an accessory regardless of whether you're a maximalist jewelry person or maybe you're not and you just want a really sleek black leather belt with sort of this cool gold buckle that has like a jewelry inspired element uh, I feel like that sort of taps into a broader customer base that might not just think of themselves as like a sparkly earring girl you guys are such a boutique brand I mean I feel like you sell so well at retail and you always did so well in my stores and from like a pretty um, wide age range and customer base what do you think what do you think it is about your line that really connects at retail I think that's a great question and also a great compliment we are constantly looking at this balance where when we started to open department stores you know about halfway into our the lifespan of our business so far you know we obviously proceeded with caution because you hear the horror stories about a department store you know screwing you over or whatever it is um and obviously, as a young brand, you kind of need the, the bigger cash flow from a department store, but it's this, this push-pull. And we're so proud that today, still over 50% of our wholesale is in independent boutiques, which is saying a lot, considering That's we amazing. are in a lot of department stores now, um, that with regard to the age thing, Lizzie does a very, very good job of designing pieces that do not feel like they were inspired by like the model off duty who was going to the coolest club because even though that was trending for a while and we probably missed sales and like the the aughts because of that I think that that would have never opened up the door to a customer base in her like 40s 50s 60s plus and we get a lot of women who call uh, and even place an order over the phone and they're 75 and they live down south and they like love the big necklace and so I feel like you know 80% 80% of our collection was something that our mom always wanted to wear, and so and and we definitely use her as a bit of a muse from that perspective. My mom. Um, I love that. We love the moms in LFJ and the grandmothers in LFJ. So I think that it's always been a little bit more sort of refined and mature, even sort of more mature than we were at the time that we were 22. It, it used to always feel to me like a really great vintage find. Oh, I know? love that. Such a compliment. Like, like, an, like an estate sale. Totally. That's such a compliment. And I have to like say, I mean, I definitely probably had my moments of like terrible 
outfits that I wore to a club or something. But in general, Catherine and I always skewed a bit older when dressing. Like we were never the queens of like tube tops and mini skirts. And I think we always were a bit more the micro minis. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and some people do that really well. Um, but I think we were always skewing a bit like older in our dressing. And also, I looked at my maternal grandmother a lot for inspiration. She was just, like the most stylish person I know. I think that kind of informed too the type of woman I was thinking about. And so that person was just not you I know love that. eighteen, and well, she was very fashionable. She just wasn't eighteen. And I do think we we do these sort of surveys with our marketing for these days to so get more technical. Well, you know, they'll do polls and ask um, a big swath of the customer base or the followers, like, what do you think of when you think of Lizzie Fortunato? And it's funny, the words that come up are so much more about joy and happiness and fun you get a little bit of the cool and edgy but it's more about like sort of the sparking joy so without sounding too cheesy i do think the pieces are really really happy and i think the color communicates that and i just think that um people say like i get so many compliments when i'm wearing this so it's not like this very minimal super cool piece that no one really notices like it's a head turner and it brings joy and it's a conversation starter and I think that the so nice yeah and every fashion every fashion line every fashion piece you know they all evoke different moods anyway Mm -hmm. right and that's what we're tapping into we're tapping into the escape and the mood and oh I'm sexy now Mm -hmm. I feel polished now 100 joyful like yeah yes. know, having having some happy pieces in yes. your collection is really nice lizzie and i are very happy people so we can't help but let that sort of communicate through the jewelry as well yeah good good telegraph so what has been through through these years you've obviously been through a lot in 15 years but in this past crisis moment the, the most recent one through the pandemic and obviously the ongoing volatility what have you like learned over the past few years everyone's learned a lot yeah for sure I think that we've always been lean and I I use the word lean to talk about both like our finances like don't spend money that you don't have Um, our team structure people work hard or they wear different hats because we don't have uh, you know a cog in the machine for every single function people definitely have to get creative with their jobs lean with regard to you know our distribution like we are pretty nimble and we try to a really satisfy our accounts that we are working with and then you know don't stretch ourselves too thin with you know new account requests I think that paired with what Lizzie was saying about the production processes where we have this sort of network of makers all over the place that we can kind of like control the switches on a little bit um, was really important in keeping us flexible through the pandemic and it's actually an interesting learning because as we grow as a company the temptation is to become less lean you want to beef up you want to staff up you want to spend more money on travel or development or all those things and of course to some extent that's 100 percent necessary in fact i think most object people would objectively say i haven't spent enough money to grow as fast as we probably could have but on the flip side when the going gets tough and you've got the OA financial crisis or you've got um you know, the trends really moving against you, or obviously you've got COVID and you've got department stores actually canceling your orders, you're really happy that you're lean because you're nimble enough to feel like you can pivot. And we even do that in the office. I mean, we might be going one direction with a new trend or a product or a new collection launch on our website and say, you know what, whatever external factor has made this look a lot less relevant, all of a sudden we need to pivot. And I think staying small enough from a DNA perspective and from a logistics perspective that you actually can pivot is crucial sort of at our size where 
we don't have enough money to just be like, okay, well, we're just going to lose a lot with a decision that, you know, was stuck in the, you know, in the ground and, you know, the bureaucracy of not being able to steer the ship quickly would be a problematic place for us to be. So not being over leveraged, being nimble, nimble, cross-functional. A hundred percent. And doing that from a mental perspective as well. Like sometimes I'll get pushed back on the team because people will say like, we committed to this one idea. And then that idea where we don't always have to commit to the plan where we can change change plans, which no one loves. Like it's it's annoying to change plans, but I actually think the sort of uh, like mental and emotional approach to being nimble as well is really important as a small business owner. Flexibility is everything. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And then I know you um, probably would love to like geek out over um, operations and like what are some passionate yes. projects oh my gosh. You've, you've tackled lately? So operations are sort of the, it is funny that every small business has to go through this and some people probably love it and some people hate it. I, I won't say that I love it. I, I do really like solving the problems though. And um, I, for us, because everything was always made in New York, we finished all of our product in our studio. We've always shipped all of our product from our studio. So most brands, uh, for the listeners out there who are maybe less familiar, most brands will go to a 3PL, which is a warehouse, and they'll receive their product. And then the warehouse will pick and pack it and ship it to Nordstrom's or ship it to the e-commerce customer. Um, Because we're finishing all of the product in the studio, we're doing all of our quality control, our packaging, and our shipping from our studio, which for the longest time was pretty masochistic. We've recently invested a lot in having um, sort of warehouse systems and functionality that talks to each other digitally really well and staffing that up both with people but more importantly with technology and that's the part where we could be selling anything it doesn't have to be jewelry it's just an incredible systems update that I've invested a lot of time in uh, over the past few years with some really helpful consultants and advisors and all of that kind of thing so to me that's really important because you can make the best product possible if you cannot get it out the door on time you're not gonna be a viable business and And it's cutthroat out there. I mean, stores want a reason to cancel your order when the going gets tough. And if you're five days late, even when I talk to my friends who work for the highest end Japanese and Parisian brands, they will tell me, so-and-so department store is not letting us ship this because it's three days late. And um, which is ruthless and sad and hard. Um, But I'm really proud of the fact that we get feedback from so many of our accounts, both boutiques and department stores that are say, you guys run a a tight ship. You guys really have never shipped late and you know it's almost like you've got 100 people on the back end where you maybe only have 10 or 15 so I'm really proud of just the fact that our our systems work well and we have a team of very sort of responsible diligent people who take it very seriously that's amazing also I will just chime in to Catherine's credit um moving all this product from an office in Soho it's not like we have like massive industrial space outside of New York City it's like all moving out of a sixth floor space in Soho and as she said it's over 7,000 units a season. So it's a very significant amount of pieces that have to like get barcoded and go to the right customer or right department store. Um, so she, she doesn't take enough credit. She has like overhauled that system um, in a way that, yeah, every creative needs the operation side because you could design the best thing on earth, but if it's not getting out the door properly, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah and if the orders are getting canceled. Totally. All that work for. It's irrelevant, exactly. And I hate when you read like the Steve Jobs book and all of a sudden he goes from like the back garage to the IPO in like a chapter and you're like, but how did it happen? <laughs> so again, for the listeners out there, this is Catherine. I'm, I really was packing boxes myself until like three years ago and I occasionally will still pack a box, rarely now. But I mean, for really the first 10 years, we were so hands-on. It took a very long time to figure out 
what do those systems changes look like? It, it's not overnight, at least maybe for Steve Jobs it was overnight. For me, it was not overnight, but it takes a lot of sort of analysis and work with programmers and work with smart people to figure out infrastructure build-outs. And, um, and that's a real part of the those puzzle. Systems are kind of everything in a weird way. It's like not incredibly. Yeah, it is not glamorous. Beautiful um, part of the business. Unless you're so like essential. me and you kind of think it's sexy. But <laughs> you, seem, you seem to kind of be into it. <laughs> So you clearly have a good specialty store business, department store business. Are you also, are you fully like blended at this point? DTC, doing marketplace, affiliate, are you doing everything? We, the, so the e-commerce business, the transformation has been incredible. And I know we're not alone when I say that COVID really changed that for us. So pre-COVID in like 18, 19, I would say e-com was growing from like a, first a very small portion, like 10, 11% of the business to maybe in 18, 19, we hired our first digital marketing firm who we're still with and who we adore. And then maybe it became, you know, 15, 16% of the business. And then in the beginning of COVID, it sort of went up to 20, 25% of the business. And now 2022, it's 50% of the business. And so it's incredible. Obviously, you know, from a margin perspective, it's helpful. It's also helpful to sort of control the entire process and not be at the, um, at the whim of a wholesale partner. I will caveat that with the fact that our wholesale partners are still very important. I mean, they still are 50% of the business and they're hugely important for marketing. They're hugely important for sort of just expanding our presence in the world. But the ability to sort of have more control over that e-commerce channel is something we always wanted. We've invested obviously heavily in the website. We've invested heavily in marketing, um, beginning to grow sort of that affiliate platform. And so yeah, it's really, it's really incredible. We never, that was always the 11th hour thing where Lizzie was making a mailer at like 10 p.m. on a Saturday night because we hadn't gotten around to it because it always seemed in the old days like the cherry on top. Now it's the thing on a Monday morning, our first meeting of the week is the e-commerce meeting. So the flip in the importance of e-commerce, obviously across the board, um, is is definitely the same for us it's super duper important and and obviously financially really important but i will say i sometimes feel bad for brands that don't have wholesale relationships because like wholesale is how we met you Kristen. next weekend we're going to the wedding of two buyers in chicago we've had buyers come to our each of our weddings the relationships that we've made having been in wholesale for 15 years are like some of our best friends in the world it's incredible and it's like having you know you just can't you can't immerse in all of these little pockets totally. around the world without the totally absolutely specialty like, store because that's how you like get those original yeah. customers right. who become your biggest. Right, fans. you don't have to go to Paris Fashion Week if you're running exclusively an e-commerce business. And it's been those moments. I mean, we did in 2014 a tour of all of our Japanese stores with um, what, like a contact from one of the Japanese department stores who then like took us on the grand tour of Tokyo and beyond. And it was one of the coolest experiences we've ever had in our lives, getting face to face with customers there, seeing all these stores that like had us beautifully displayed in the windows and stuff. And that was just so special. Obviously e-commerce is terrific and we love having a beautiful website and getting to tell our story online. The wholesale has been like the really rewarding part in terms of actual personal relationships. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And yeah, getting out to the store. Totally. And we still travel a lot um, yeah. for trunk shows and things. And like, it's really fun. Even 15 years in, getting to go and like stand in the dressing room of some woman you met five minutes ago who's trying on your necklaces and looks fabulous and feels great is like really fun and rewarding. No, I love that. All right, I have two more questions for you guys. Um, one, 
I guess, Catherine, are there any charities or things in the community that you guys have worked with that you feel passionate about? I feel like I've like seen this. Yeah, that's such a great question. And also something I think that we need to be better about storytelling on because we always, one of our sort of like the five bullets in our mission statement is being a small but mighty platform for good. And I think, you know, it it, it is what it sounds like, which is that, you know, we're not a huge company, but using sort of our limited cash flow or the profits at the end of the year are primarily getting either paid out to our employees, reinvested in the business, or given to charity. And we have actually on our website at all times a few give back styles. So whether it's um, we do the Laguna necklace as an, a recycled glass bead necklace, so a portion of the proceeds go to NRDC, the National uh, Resource Defense Council. Um, we do a lot with Planned Parenthood because... We're both young women who care deeply about the politics of our country and the and the ability for a woman to choose what she does with her body. Um, so we do things both more on a national scale. We do a lot with um, Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU. And then we'll often pick more topical charities to relate to a collection. So for example, our Spring 22 collection was uh, photographed out in Abiquiu, which was the home of Georgia O'Keeffe. And while we were so humbled by the landscape and the story of O'Keeffe and Santa Fe and the surrounding area, we couldn't be out there and not recognize that so much of what she did was also borrowed from other cultures. Uh, We were sensitive. I mean, we had a sort of squash blossom inspired necklace that we ultimately held from the collection because we recognized that we didn't want to sort of profit off of designs that didn't feel like they were unique to us. And um, one of our best-selling necklaces that season called the Skystone Necklace, which was made from this beautiful turquoise, uh, a large portion of the proceeds went to the Tewa Women's Foundation, which is supports um, Native American women in uh, the Southwest. So we really try to find uh, ways that are sort of specific to the collections to give back and then also to give back on the things that Lizzie and I and our team feel strongly about. That. Yeah, which is that really cool and... We love to vocalize it. We do at least once a year a give back strand. So our first one ever was um, for Christy Turlington's Every Mother Counts. And we love Every Mother Counts. We've been involved with it for a while. And we did this Every Woman necklace that sold out immediately. It's this amazing turquoise strand and gave a big portion to them. And it was funny because we didn't tell them we were doing it. We were just like, we love this organization. We love the premise. And I got an email from Christy being like, who are you guys? And why did you just give us so much money? (laughs) So we've now sort of struck up a good relationship with them. But yeah, I mean, we don't get here unless we give back along the way so it's been really meaningful to have those sort of organizational connections that's so nice no I love that I think I saw something on your Instagram once about it was something giving back to some ocean cleanup yes which one which organization is that is that Oceana it wasn't Oceana it was a um I can't remember a plastic free ocean cleanup and now the name is of course escaping me but we actually that's an ongoing one we have um, a lapis earring that gives yeah. back it's now we have like a few we're gonna we actually need to do a collection page which we just talked about last week and have one that's all of our give back pieces on one page together so that you can truly shop for good that's a great so idea. with giving tuesday coming up i feel like that that collection actually needs to be officially launched because it's sort of lived quietly for so long that people well, don't realize they're giving back yeah, a lot yeah. of this, there are, i mean not a lot but a handful of the styles on our site are these perennial give back styles so at the end of each like quarter or whatever it is we'll calculate sales from those and make the relevant donations um and it's kind of like nice if you happen to be shopping and see like oh this is also beneficial but so many people just buy it because they like it and they don't even know that there's an associated goodwill with it and then my last question for you lizzie if you were going to go it's a hard question (laughs) but if you were going to go through your collection or site right now what's 
and you know like if I was saying buy invest in one pair of shoes mm, I would say mm-hmm. buy a pair of loafers right mm-hmm. now or something totally what would you what would you say is like a great investment from a jewelry perspective oh, that's right such a now? good question let me just rack my brain really quickly okay um okay so from our 14k collection we have a handful of different single strand necklaces and when I say single strand it's just like a simple single strand of beads uh, semi-precious and precious beads with like a 14 karat gold toggle closure so you could just like wear this all the time you could layer it with a statement piece you could wear it on its own there's one that's done in opal that I love um so that would be that would be my necklace investment because you can it's a graduated strand of opals it's like big enough that you could wear it with a t-shirt and you would just like look like you had this a stellar necklace on but it's small enough that you could layer it with a bunch of other necklaces and and make a great neck mess and then um earrings Ooh, this one's tricky I'm partial to our organic hoops and our infinity hoops because they're like such a signature. I'm wearing the infinity right now. They're both resin styles that come in a rainbow of colors and they're a really friendly price point. I think the organic hoops might be our best selling earring and they're $150 and come in awesome colors. And they're just like a pick me up. You put them on and whatever you're wearing, you just feel like you look better. It's not necessarily like the most innovative thing on the site. Like we have so many other styles that incorporate perhaps more interesting materials um, or more complicated to make, but those are just a go-to that feel great. Like a good investment. Totally. Totally. I think that anyone who buys them is wearing them a lot. Yeah. And I think that's really important. You have to buy something that you're going to wear a lot. Yeah. No, I wear my jewelry for years and years and years and years. Like it's insane. So do we. Um, Which is why I don't buy super trendy. (laughs) Okay. Um, You guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Kristen, you're amazing. Thank you for supporting us for truly 15 years. Yeah, I think you were one of the OGs. So thank you. You got it. You got it. All right. Thanks, you guys.